Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 306, Two Readings of Mark, Popular or Esoteric, Part 2. In this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, I'm going to review a chapter called The Trinity and the Gospel of Mark, written by Dr. Daniel Johansson, or Johansson, I'm not sure which. Dr. Johansson is a lecturer in New Testament studies and is academic dean at the Lutheran School of Theology in Gothenburg, Sweden. I take it that this book chapter and also another article of his that I read are based on his PhD thesis, which was called Jesus and God in the Gospel of Mark, Unity and Distinction. His other published piece that I've read is called Kyrios, that is the Greek for Lord, in the Gospel of Mark. It's from the Journal of the Study of the New Testament in 2010. And I'll put a link to that paper on the blog post for this episode. This chapter I'm focusing on in this episode is in a collection called The Essential Trinity, edited by Brandon Crow and Carl Truman. This is what the Reformed scholars that we heard from in episode 276 recommended as an important resource on the Trinity, how the Trinity truly is in the Bible and is super important to Christian living, and so on. At the start of the book, they set their agenda for the first portion of the book where this chapter occurs. They write, The chapters in part one consider the Trinitarian contours of every corpus of the New Testament, along with a chapter reflecting on the Old Testament roots of Trinitarian doctrine. Here we must be clear. The term Trinity and key terminology such as homoousios do not appear in Scripture. The technical terminology for Trinitarian doctrine comes later, being crystallized in the 4th century. However, this precision of language does not import something foreign into the biblical texts, but faithfully articulates the content of those texts. In other words, it is the presupposition of this volume that Trinitarian doctrine legitimately and necessarily follows from the phenomena of Scripture rightly understood. Therefore, when using the term Trinity or Trinitarian throughout this volume in relation to the biblical books, we speak of the triadic contours of the text that lead inexorably to the doctrine of the Trinity. Stated differently, one of the aims of this volume is to show that faithful exegesis of biblical texts necessitates a Trinitarian reading of the biblical texts, especially in the New Testament, where the doctrine is more fully revealed than in the Old. Notice the editors explicitly state that they're all presupposing that the Trinity is actually a biblical doctrine. I guess they are trying to illustrate that. Uh, They're not exactly arguing against contrary views really much in this book in most places. That's maybe disappointing, but let's see what they come up with in this chapter. On the face of it, it's a very bold claim to claim that you can find the teachings of the ecumenical councils, such as the Constantinopolitan Creed of 381 and the definition from the council at Chalcedon in 451, it's really bold to claim that you can find all those same claims centuries earlier in the first century in the New Testament. Just for a very rough comparison, it's like saying all the doctrines of the U.S. Constitution are really presupposed in the Magna Carta. It's just an anachronism on the face of it. I mean, think about it. The word Trinity isn't in these sources. Well, is there any word that refers to a triune God in these sources? 
what New Testament scholars will tell you is no. Notice the goalpost moving that was in the introduction. They're saying, okay, we're not going to find it explicitly, but yeah, we're presupposing that it's implicit there. Okay. But what we should expect to see there is, quote, Trinitarian contours or triadic contours of the text. Now, people, this is a metaphor that needs some explaining, I think. Like, what does it mean for a text of the Bible to have Trinitarian or triadic contours? Is it just that it mentions God, God's Spirit, and God's Son? Well, if that's so, then Trinitarian contours will be consistent with various kinds of Unitarian theologies. Or is there supposed to be some presupposition or some kind of representation of a tripersonal God? Is that what we're supposed to find? On the face of it, that's going to be very hard to find in a book like The Gospel According to Mark. This phrase, Trinitarian contours, honestly, it's what I call a weasel term. It's a term such that its very purpose is its ambiguity. That's why it's useful to people. One says, well, there are Trinitarian contours in this text. Okay, does that mean that one has actually found Trinitarian, that is, triune God-related claims implicit in the text? If so, why not just say that? Leave aside this metaphor of contours. Of course, one doesn't want to say that because it sounds like that would be going too far. Or, on the other hand, is there actually not Trinitarian content there, but there's something maybe somehow similar to Trinitarian content there? Which is it? Well, the point of this term is you don't have to answer questions like that. Honestly, scholars really ought to avoid terms like this. In his opening section, Dr. Johansson says something important in a footnote, and that is that scholarly fashions about how to read Mark change. He writes in his first footnote, From the early 20th century to about 1970, the dominating view was that Mark represented a divine Christ. Just as an aside, I wonder if that's true across the board. But he continues, After that, the majority view changed and Mark's Jesus was seen as being merely a human being, albeit an exalted one. It seems, however, that the opinion is about to change again, for several recent studies have argued that Mark portrays a divine Christ. And then he refers to a 2011 article of his own on this topic, which I haven't read. It's called The Identity of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, Past and Present Proposals. Before I get into this further, let me just say that Dr. Johansson's research is one in a, seems to me, a fairly large genre of writings. I explained the motivation in the previous episode of this podcast. Modern scholarship has taken away most of the traditional arguments from the text of the New Testament to the Trinity and to the deity of Christ. And so there's a frenzy now to discover new ways to supposedly derive these doctrines from the text, to supposedly find them in the text. One way you get a PhD in New Testament studies now is you study with one of the scholars who is famously committed to some version of, quote, early high Christology, and you come up with a new and creative way to try to find divine Christology or even Trinitarian theology in Scripture, and boom, that's your thesis. Any kind of creativity in this area is applauded, at least in the evangelical wing of scholarship. It may or may not be consistent with what some of the bigwigs in the field say, like Hurtado, N.T. Wright, 
Richard Bauckham. But at any rate, you have to salute them and sort of pay homage to them. Uh, but then consistent with that, you're free to just come up with things. And so this is an example of that genre of what I consider bold new readings. Toward the start of his essay, he decides to address the problem of terminology. He writes, From a strictly historical point of view, it would be anachronistic to use terms like Trinity and Trinitarian, since these appeared and were discussed long after Mark was written and involved philosophical categories he does not appear to allude to. Right, like hypostasis and usia. For this reason, some scholars prefer to speak of a proto-Trinitarian view, a divine triad, a threefold pattern, and so on when discussing New Testament texts. Well, I prefer just to characterize it as entirely non-Trinitarian. Proto-Trinitarian, I mean, that's a weasel word. If something's proto-Trinitarian, is it Trinitarian? If so, we're back to the anachronism. Is it just similar to later Trinitarian views? How is it similar? What does it mean to say that it's proto-Trinitarian? Is it that it implies the Trinity? Well, then it would just be Trinitarian, right? Just not explicitly Trinitarian. I mean, if you're going to use a word like proto-Trinitarian, I think you have to define it. To say there's a threefold pattern in New Testament writings? Well, that's nice, but what does that have to do with theology? Why can't there be all kinds of different threefold patterns in, say, the Gospels, and yet the theology be that the one true God just is the Father? So that's a Unitarian theology. I don't know. What kind of threefold pattern? Are we supposed to say that we're witnessing the action of tripersonal God somehow? If so, how can you establish that from the text? He continues, The present study acknowledges the difficulty in using, quote, Trinitarian, end quote, vocabulary. Yeah, difficulty to put it mildly. On the other hand, threefold patterns in the New Testament cannot be completely disconnected from the discussions and development of the doctrine of the Trinity in subsequent centuries. The early Christian theologians were, in fact, among other things, also discussing precisely these texts. Thus, while being aware of the difficulties, I nevertheless feel content to ask if a Trinitarian pattern can be traced in Mark. How are we supposed to react to Dr. Johansson's contentedness? So, it's anachronistic to talk about a trinity in this book, but we're going to talk about a Trinitarian pattern. What is a Trinitarian pattern other than a pattern of something, actions, words, events, that reflects or assumes a triune God? So, why isn't it just as anachronistic to go around finding Trinitarian patterns in this book? I don't know. He feels he's on safe ground here, though, writing in a book about how supposedly the Trinity can be found in all the New Testament writings. In his next section, he talks about monotheism, right? In chapter 12, Jesus quotes the Shema, and his Jewish interlocutor says, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other except him. Mark 12, 32. Right? The he, the him, that's the Father. That's the one God. That's the one that Yahweh in the Old Testament turns out to be in the New Testament. Doesn't sound Trinitarian. In fact, it looks like it's inconsistent with any Trinity theory. If God is the Father, Son, and Spirit altogether somehow, then it's false that God just is the Father alone, which is what this seems to presuppose. To put it differently, if God is unipersonal because he's a single he, then he isn't multipersonal. God is not a they. 
He mentions how in the Jewish Bible, the one true God is identified as the creator of all things and as the one who's uniquely sovereign over all of history, right? That's presupposed in the book. And so Dr. Johansson writes, in conclusion, Mark maintains the basic Jewish understanding and belief in one God, which is stressed in particular by the inclusion of the Shema and repeated allusions to the concept of one God. Mark thus belongs to the group of early Christian writers that provides later theologians with the idea of God's oneness, one of the key elements in the later development of the Trinitarian dogma. The idea of God's oneness. I mean, I think when he writes that, he means the triune God's oneness. That's not mentioned in Mark. The one who God is in Mark, as we just heard, is the Father. In his next section, he discusses God as Father. He says the word God appears about 50 times in Mark, although more than half the time it's in constructions like the kingdom of God, the commandment of God. He says the number of direct references to God in this book is about 25. Okay, fewer references to God than to Jesus. Sure, Jesus is the main subject of the book. He says that Jesus in this book does actions that are reserved for God in the Old Testament. Well, that's an interesting phrase, are reserved for God. It's not an Old Testament doctrine that here's an action reserved for God, walking on water. Here's an action reserved for God, forgiving sins. What he's just saying is that you only see God doing these things in the Old Testament. Right. But the question is, can God authorize and empower someone else to do those things? He talks about God popping up three times in the book, beginning, middle, and end. He talks about how God is mentioned various times in the book, how Jesus is the Son and God is his Father. And now he really gets down to his business. So far, we're on firm ground here. It's standard Jewish theology. There's one he who is God, formerly known as Yahweh. Now, sometimes they substitute the word Lord for that, and Jesus' teaching distinctively prefers to refer to him as Father, our Father, my Father, our Father in Heaven, things like that. If you're looking for theological innovation, it doesn't seem to be a real theme of this book. There's no point at which the author says or implies or assumes that, hey, you might have thought that God is unipersonal, but it turns out that God is multipersonal. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that interesting? There's just no moment like that in the book, right? But he's just getting warmed up because in his next section, he's going to argue that this book actually teaches the deity of Christ or that Jesus is God. When the Trinity's podcast returns, is there an overlap in this book between God and Jesus? Okay, now we get to what's the creative and original part of this chapter. I'll read you a paragraph from page 51 in the book. Dr. Johansson writes, This brings us to the third important designation of God in Mark, Kyrios, Lord. 
God is the one Lord and God of the Shema, 1229. This title appears 16 times in Mark. It is, however, a designation also shared by Jesus. And it is often very difficult to determine whether God or Jesus is the reference. God is clearly one of the Kyrioi in 1236. That's where they're quoting Psalm 110.1, which we talked about last episode. The Lord said to my Lord. There's two Lords there, two Kyrioi. And also the referent in the scripture citation in 1211. So they're quoting the Old Testament there, and the referent seems to be God. That's exactly right. He says, but in the remaining cases, the title seems to create an overlap between God and Jesus. Okay, this I admit is an argument that I haven't seen before. We know just by looking in any lexicon that Lord can mean sir, Lord can mean master, like boss. It can refer to God when it functions as a substitute for the divine name. And it can refer to Jesus. And our author has just told us that the term Lord clearly is ambiguous between God and Jesus. Right. He's also told us why there is this ambiguous usage. It's based on Psalm 110.1, where there is the Lord who says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Boom. There's two different uses of Lord there. One is the Lord, that's God. The other is my Lord, originally seemingly a human king. Now, the Messiah who's being exalted to God's right hand. That's how the prophecy is interpreted in this book and in the rest of the New Testament. So, we know that was an early Christian view about the position of Jesus post resurrection. So, what Dr. Johansson does next is he comments on the titles Messiah slash Christ, that's two translations of one word, Christos in the Greek, and the title Son of God. He says he thinks previous research has focused too much on titles to the exclusion of other things. He points out that Son of God in the Old Testament was used for angelic beings, for Israel as a whole, for the king, for a righteous individual, and in some Jewish writings it appears to be a messianic title, like it does in this book. He also says, I'm not exactly sure why, that for non-Jewish Hellenistic readers, it would certainly imply that Jesus is a divine figure. A divine figure. This is another funny recent neologism. Notice that it's designed to be vague. Is a divine figure a god? Who knows? Is a divine figure a god-man? Who knows? It's just some character of whatever sort, which is in some sense divine. It's a divine figure. It's a fashion now to refer to the one like a son of man in the prophecy of Daniel as a divine figure. Well, in some sense, he's divine, right? I mean, he's closely associated with God. He's brought into God's throne room. He's given honors and powers you think only normally God would have. So yeah, in some sense, he's divine. But is he God himself? It would seem not. Is he a person within God? Well, you don't see that idea in Daniel, and you don't see that idea in Mark. But anyway, it's convenient in this genre of literature to talk about Jesus as a divine figure. Look, biblical Unitarians agree that in some sense he's a divine figure. He's closely associated with God. He's the Son of God. The word divine needn't mean more than that. But of course, if one's going to theorize about how Jesus is divine, one's going to have to be a lot more specific about quite what that term means. 
Next, he says he's going to look at three passages, which he says present Jesus as if he, in some mysterious way, is the God of Israel. Okay, here's the esoteric reading. Last episode, we saw that this book just hammers its main point, that Jesus, the man, truly is God's Messiah. By being the Messiah, he can be called the Son of God. He's the King of Israel, the descendant of David, destined to rule. He announces God's kingdom. God endorses him by signs and wonders and by giving him amazing teaching and authority. How are you going to get that the Son of God, in some mysterious way, is the God of Israel? Well, let's see. This first passage is the opening one that we discussed last time. He says, Mark opens his gospel by quoting three scripture passages, Exodus 23.20, Malachi 3.1, and Isaiah 43. In the first of these, God addresses Israel and promises to send his angel before them. This text is conflated with Malachi 1, where Yahweh promises to send a messenger or an angel before himself. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. In Mark, however, the way before me becomes your way. The next verse is a verbatim citation of the Septuagint, except that paths of our God in the Septuagint, that's the Greek Old Testament translation, is changed to his paths. In its original context, the text refers to a manifestation of Yahweh resulting in salvation for God's people. Skipping a bit. In Mark, however, these texts are applied to John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist wears clothes like Elijah's. He prepares the people for the coming Lord by proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he proclaims the one who will come after him. If we were to isolate chapter 1, verses 2 through 8 from what follows, we would expect a great theophany in which Yahweh appeared, but that is not the case. Indeed, Jesus appears on the banks of Jordan and becomes the object of John's expectation and Mark's Old Testament texts. Chapter 1, verse 9. Right, yeah, you might take it in that way, but you shouldn't take it in that way. This passage in chapter 1 is part of a whole book. And we know what the overall message of that book is. We know that its central, repeated, emphatic thesis is that Jesus is a human who's God's Messiah, not God himself, not a theophany. Is God coming to Israel in some sense through Jesus? I don't think the book rules that out, but I would say it's not a main theme or even a clear theme of the book. It's, of course, consistent with the presupposition that God is working through Christ, a theme you see much expanded on in John and Paul. Okay, but Dr. Johansson's trying to squeeze some deity of Christ juice out of the stone. He points out that Mark applies two Old Testament texts, the subject of which is Yahweh, to the life of Jesus. True, but we know what Mark thinks about Jesus. And he says, in this way, Jesus and God, quote, are linked in the closest possible way. Well, let's not get too excited. I mean, to link them in the closest possible way would be to numerically identify them. To say, look, the one just is the other. Like Saul just is Paul. Or Abram just is Abraham. Hey, it turns out Jesus just is the God of Israel. Our Father in heaven is also the Son of God. No, that's not what the book is saying. Is it closely associating the two? Well, sure. Just by calling him the Son of God, that suggests or presupposes a uniqueness, and the Messiah is supposed to be a uniquely high role. 
God says that this is his beloved son and that we have to listen to him. Rejecting him is tantamount to rejecting God because he's coming on the authority of God. Close linkage? Sure. Ontological confusion? Nope, not in this book. I think a confusion of Jesus and God is only projected onto this book. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Johansson moves on to a second alleged deity of Christ text in this gospel. His second text is Mark 2, 1 through 12, where Jesus forgives the man's sins. We talked about this last time. He says the episode clarifies that Jesus himself forgives the sins of the paralytic. And second, that Jesus acts in a role that belongs exclusively to God and thereby, in the eyes of his audience, commits the worst sin possible against God, blasphemy. Nothing seems to suggest that Jesus or Mark disagree with the scribe's interpretation apart from the blasphemy accusation. So the way he's reading the episode is that the reader is supposed to agree with Jesus's critics who are thinking mean thoughts about him, that no one can forgive sins but God alone, and therefore Jesus must be God alone. Not in this book. Who draws that conclusion in this book? Does God say, hey, this is me? No. Do the hostile witnesses say, how dare you say that you're God? No. As we heard last time, they confess that he's the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. Do the friendly witnesses say, hey, this guy's God, that's why he can forgive sins? No. Does he say, hey, guess what, guys, I'm God? No. He agrees when others say that he's the Son of God, the Messiah. Now, how is the reader supposed to know that he's not supposed to agree with the critic's interpretation of what's going on here? It's right in verse 10, Dr. Johansson. Jesus says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he heals the paralytic. So he calls himself the Son of Man. That's someone other than God. You can call it a divine figure if you prefer. He has authority on earth to forgive sins. Look, if he's God, you don't need to make the point that, hey, you need to know that I have this authority. But if he's someone other than God, this is important information. He says, I'm going to prove this to you, that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. I'm going to do it by healing this guy. The idea is, since God is with me, he's going to vindicate my claim that I am authorized to forgive sins by doing something that presumably only God can do, which is heal this guy through me. So there you go. That's why you're supposed to disagree with the scribes here. They're bad guys in the story, and they're not sort of accidentally saying what's true, which is that Jesus is God. That's not what this book teaches. 
Dr. Johansson says the evangelist maintains both that God alone has the authority to forgive sins and that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Mark, thereby, so it seems, places Jesus on the divine side. Oh, man. Another whopping anachronism. This rhetoric that an author is placing Jesus on the creator side of the creator-creature distinction is from the 4th century. Even an author like Origen can occasionally refer to Jesus as created or creature. The kind of Logos theologians who thought that Jesus came into existence before creation. Yeah, they don't think he's part of the creation of the heavens and the earth. They think he was already around before that. But in some sense, they could think of him as created. Even people who believe in eternal generation can think of him as originated or caused, if you like, created. This big obsession that you can't say that Jesus is in any sense created is a 4th century concern, and it's just not in this 1st century text. Where in this text is it said, implied, or assumed that Jesus is uncreated or that he's a creator or indeed the creator? It's not here. It's not anywhere in the book. Whenever God the Creator is mentioned, it seems to be the Father who's in view, as we saw last time. Dr. Johansson's third text, chapter 4, verses 36 to 41. Jesus is sleeping in the boat. The disciples are terrified by the storm that the boat's going to be destroyed. Jesus wakes up and rebukes the sea, saying, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. And they're filled with awe and say to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, even the slave, even the 12-year-old, even the not very smart guy who's sitting in the house church listening to this book being read, has for three chapters heard over and over the message that Jesus is the Son of God, that is to say, the Messiah. So that's the answer that you're supposed to supply here. Dr. Johansson thinks, though, that there's a secret message encoded here, which is that surely Jesus is God himself. Jesus is Yahweh. The book doesn't say it. Who knows why? But he claims this is what's being asserted. He writes, The Old Testament is unambiguous. There is only one whom sea and wind obey, the God of Israel. Numerous passages attest to the sovereign lordship of Yahweh over water and storms. The same is true of the early Jewish literature. Sure, fine. But the issue is, why couldn't God give that authority and that power to a human? If God can empower a human to cast out demons, if God can empower a human to teach his own message, to bring further divine revelation, if God can empower a human to forgive sins, why couldn't God empower a human to still the wind and the waves? In fact, that's what's being presupposed here. It's purely reading into the text to say, as Dr. Johansson does, that, quote, Jesus acts as a divine being when he calms the storm and appears to share another divine prerogative, indeed an attribute that demonstrates Yahweh's absolute sovereignty over all creation, to ascribe such powers to Jesus is to equate him with God himself. Not in this book. This is like a conspiracy theory. Right? Where is this conclusion actually asserted in the book? Surely not just in the critical thoughts of Jesus' critics when he says that the man's sins are forgiven. 
Surely not just in the high priest when he claims that Jesus is somehow a blasphemer, even though what Jesus has just said yes to is being God's son, the Messiah. The narrator doesn't draw the conclusion. The voice of God coming from the sky doesn't endorse this conclusion. Jesus himself doesn't endorse this conclusion. Peter does not confess this at the high point where he shows that the disciples really are getting it. They're getting what Jesus is. They're understanding his identity, that he's God's Christ. On the face of it, being God himself is not consistent with being God's anointed one. God's anointed one is somebody whose mission and power and authority are given by God. God doesn't get those things from anybody. Dr. Johansson then says, Jesus demands loyalty to him, even that we should be willing to die for him. Yes, loyalty to his own person, willingness to suffer for his sake and for the gospel. Right. If you do these things, you're accepting this move of God in sending this agent. If you don't do those things, you're rejecting the action of God, and therefore you're rejecting God. It doesn't follow, as Dr. Johansson says, that the Christian reader of Mark's gospel must, in order to fulfill the Shema, include Jesus in the devotion directed to God. You're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. But also, you're supposed to accept Jesus as God's Messiah. Is Jesus worshipped in this book? Seemingly not, although... The early readers would have known about the teaching of Jesus' resurrection and exaltation. To where? To God's right hand. To a position where he must be honored, not as God, but as the Son of God. As you see, say, in Philippians 2 and in Revelation chapter 5. There's no confusion between Jesus and God here, anywhere in the book, really. When the Trinity's podcast returns, even if you have the deity of Christ in this book, where would you get the Trinity? So as we've seen so far, Dr. Johansson thinks that in some mysterious way, Jesus is being presented in this book as the God of Israel. He also has asserted that somehow the use of Lord for both God and for Jesus creates an overlap between them. An overlap usually means like shared parts, like a shared divine nature, I guess. Really, where is that presented in this book? Where is it presupposed in this book? Where is it implied? As far as I can see, it's just not. In this book, there are two different characters assumed to be two different persons, sure, but also two different beings. There's the Father, that's the one true God, the God of Israel. And then there's the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of Mary, obviously a man, 
Obviously not God himself, otherwise he wouldn't be God's Christ. He can't just be a theophany, an appearance of God. I think the author would agree that God is working through him in the way that God works through agents like prophets. But the idea that this is somehow the same person or the same being as God, I mean, how could you get that from this book? I suggest that you don't get it from the book. You only bring it to the book. If you want to hear more about how supposedly the ambiguity of the term Kyrios, Lord, somehow points to Jesus and God being the same or closely linked or something in the vague area of high Christology, you'll have to look at Dr. Johansson's article called Kyrios in the Gospel of Mark. I don't have time to really fully cover or accurately summarize this article of his, Kyrios in the Gospel of Mark. But I'll tell you that in my professional opinion, the argument here is quite a mess. Here's one way he puts his main thesis in that piece. He writes, The thesis is, in short, that the ambiguous use of kurios, Lord, is intentional and serves the purpose of linking Jesus to the God of Israel so that they both share the identity as kurios. So he's starting off with the correct premise that the term kurios, Lord, is an ambiguous term in this book and indeed in the New Testament and in early Christianity. It can refer to God or to Jesus, the Son of God. But in addition to noting this ambiguity, he seems to say in some places that the term refers to both of them at once, like it's not a singular referring term, but a plural referring term. I'm not sure why anyone should agree with that. And his point is that in his use of the term kurios, Mark is sort of smearing the line between God and Jesus, with the aim being that the reader will conclude that these two are the same kurios, the same Lord, or maybe that they're two persons within one and the same Lord, which I think would be a really odd and ineffective strategy by the author. How do you get from what's clearly an ambiguous term that can refer to this one or to that one to the idea that, oh, actually refers sometimes to both of them, and then you're supposed to draw the conclusion from that that they're the same kurios? I don't know. This is really an out there kind of argument. I mean, supposing the author was adopting this strategy, how many people are going to get it? How many people are going to analyze the usage of kurios in this book? Just the few, the learned, right? This would go hand in hand with interpreting Mark as an esoteric book, a book which deliberately conceals its deeper teachings to hide them from the masses so that only the worthy can uncover them. The dupes, the dummies, the hoi polloi, they'll get all caught up in just the obvious, straightforward surface meaning of the book. But those who discern that this is occult literature, that this is an esoteric writing, will be able to uncover the deeper truths. I say fooey on that kind of quasi-gnostic nonsense. It's not that kind of book. Okay, but suppose he's right. Jesus is God. It's encoded in those quoted passages from chapter 1. And whenever God chimes in and says, this is my son, 
So, aha, yes, but it's also him. He's a truly divine son, just as divine as his father. Really, this is the God of Israel somehow also. Okay, but how would you get a tripersonal God out of this book? The term the father is not understood to refer to a tripersonal God, but it's co-referential with God. Whenever God is mentioned, that's supposed to be the same one as the father. God and the father are interchangeable in that sense in this book in a theological context. Of course, in other contexts, the word father can refer to some human being. Okay, what about the Holy Spirit? Dr. Johansson writes that the word pneuma, spirit, appears 23 times in Mark, but only six of these are references to the Holy Spirit. Of the remaining 17, 14 refer to unclean spirits, and three appear to refer to the spirit of a human being. In comparison with the large number of references to God and Jesus, these are few, and with the exception of 1, 8 through 12, appear only to be mentioned more or less in passing. 1, 8 through 12 is the baptism, where in some sense God's Spirit comes down on Jesus like a dove. Such evidence should not be disregarded, though, since this may give us hints of what the author believed and took for granted. So he makes some, I think, damaging but honest admissions about spirit talk in this book. This is on page 58. He says, in a crucial statement, John the Baptist states that the one who will come after him will baptize with Holy Spirit, Mark 1.8, the comparison to and contrast with water, John's baptism, and the lack of the definite article suggests that the spirit is here primarily conceived of as an impersonal power rather than a person. Indeed, well said. He continues, in the next reference, chapter 1, verse 10, the Spirit has a more personal character when in the form of a dove he descends upon or into Jesus. A more personal character. I mean, a dove isn't a person, right? A dove isn't a human being. That's trivially true. But a dove isn't a self. It's not something that has knowledge that you could have an interpersonal relationship with. Right. I mean, you can have a pet dove, but no, a dove is not a person. And I think sometimes people, maybe based on movies, misread this text. It needn't be taken as that, you know, a bystander would see like a white bird flapping down and landing on Jesus or something. Who knows what it was, literally? Maybe it's something that Jesus only saw. Maybe it was just this kind of lighter power coming down on him. I mean, how dove-like was this, really? Did it have claws? Did it have a beak? I don't think the text really tells you. But at any rate, it's definitely not telling you that, hey, the Holy Spirit's a person, see? It came down like a dove. He says, in the final reference in the prologue, the Spirit is the subject of an action. Jesus is driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit. The latter could be either the action of a person or an impersonal power. Right. That's honest. We look to say that Jesus is driven out in the wilderness by God's Spirit isn't different than saying that Jesus is driven out into the wilderness by God. Then God's Spirit would just be an aspect of God or a manifestation of God. Okay, but the part he wants to emphasize is chapter 3, verse 29. He writes, Jesus states that his opponent's accusation of his being possessed and doing the works of Satan is a sin against the Holy Spirit, Tapnuma Tahagion, and as such an unforgivable sin. In this case, the Spirit is clearly described as a personal being. No, it's not clear. 
why can't the sin against the Holy Spirit just be like rejecting God's reaching out towards you? I don't know. That doesn't require the Holy Spirit to be a personal being in addition to God, which is his point here, that is God the Father. The same must be said, he writes about 13.11, where Jesus promises that his disciples need not worry beforehand about what they are to say when they face trials. Quote, but say whatever is given you at that time, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is more than a mere power here, a personal being speaking and putting the right words in the mouths of the disciples. Similarly, in 1236, it mentions David spoke by the Holy Spirit. He says, though this could refer to divine inspiration, it should probably be understood that the Spirit gave the words to David, just as the Spirit is going to give words to persecuted followers of Jesus. Look, I mean, this is all really inconclusive. And I think he tells you the reason it's inconclusive just below. He writes it in the New Testament, quote, personal and seemingly impersonal descriptions could stand side by side. So the thing about the Holy Spirit conceived of as a power of God or a manifestation of the power of God is you could personify it and talk about it doing things and speaking and so on. Conversely, if the Spirit is a divine person, you could talk about it as if it's a force, right? You could just do the opposite of personification, depersonification, or whatever English teachers want to call that sort of thing. So just your initial impression of the description or the characterization really doesn't settle it. And he's right about that. And he kind of admits that, but at the same time, he wants to say, hey, guess what? The personal presentations, the personal sounding descriptions have to prevail here. Really? Why? The Spirit doesn't have a proper name. The Spirit isn't obviously an additional character to God. If it's not obviously an additional character to the Father, why do we take God's Spirit to be a person in his own right? Is your spirit a person? You might just say, well, my spirit is me. Yeah, but is your spirit a person in addition to you? You should say no to that, right? Because your spirit's just like a certain aspect of you, or if you're a dualist, maybe it's a part or a component of you. Okay, your spirit isn't someone in addition to you. Why is God's Spirit supposed to be someone in addition to God? This book doesn't tell you. It's not part of the message of this book. As far as I can see here, the Spirit talk is just similar to other books in the New Testament and similar to Jewish thinking generally. Okay, but suppose Dr. Johansson's right. Yeah, the Spirit's a divine person here, and it's not just another way of referring to God the Father. And suppose that Jesus is a divine person, too, and obviously the Father is the one true God, so he's a divine person. Okay, where's the part that says that the three of them are one God? That they're the same God, or that each is within one God, or that God lives in those three ways, etc., etc.? Go ahead, I'll wait. It's just not there, right? That's why this isn't a Trinitarian book. Dr. Johansson writes on page 60, The Spirit is never called God in Mark, true, and no passages are used from the scriptures that, in their Old Testament context, with God as their subject, are applied to the Spirit, as you see in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. There is, on the whole, little direct evidence for the Spirit's taking on divine prerogatives. 
But there is plenty of evidence for a close association of the Spirit with both God and Jesus. All right, well, sure. I think it's presupposed in this book that it's God's Spirit which is empowering Jesus. I don't recall a passage where that's actually said, but I think it's just kind of a background presumption of how prophets function. Yeah, I mean, look, just talking about linkage, if you're really taking seriously a non-Trinitarian reading of this book, then closely linking the Spirit of God with God and with the Son of God, it looks like it's just irrelevant on the face of it, right? Because that's going to be consistent with all these rival views. It's hard to see how you can get any argument that something is a divine person just because it's, quote, closely linked with another divine person. Honestly, this talk of linking, it's kind of hand-waving. How is it showing what needs to be shown? How would that actually get you from what's observed in the text to a conclusion that here's another divine person? Okay, but we're still waiting for the Trinity part. Dr. Johansson in the next section writes, The Gospel of Mark does not include any threefold formulas, such as the baptismal formula of Matthew 28.19, the benediction in 2 Corinthians 13.13, or the greeting in Revelation 1.4-5. Nor do we find passages with dense triadic patterns in which the author frequently and in varying ways refers to God, Jesus, and the Spirit, such as Romans 5.1-8, Romans 8. Galatians 4, 4-6, Ephesians 1, 3-14. In this way, the triadic pattern in Mark is far less intensive. Nevertheless, we have found that while Mark maintains monotheism, he presents Jesus as belonging to the divine side of the God-creation divide, and furthermore portrays the Holy Spirit in personal terms, linking the Spirit both to God and Jesus. I mean, that's really scraping hard. This idea that there's an absolute distinction between creator and creation, and Jesus is on the creator side, let's be honest, that's just not in this book. It's not said, it's not implied, and it's not even clearly presupposed. Holy Spirit in personal terms? Yeah, barely, a little bit, but that's neutral between the rival views of the Holy Spirit. Linking the Spirit to God and Jesus? Well, sure, but that's just not relevant. The three together? Why wouldn't the three be together? God, Spirit of God, Son of God. He comes back to, quote, the overlap between God and Jesus created by the Kyrios title. I'm sorry, but that just seems completely imaginary to me. He mentions some passages, chapter 5, 19 through 20, where it's difficult to decide whether God or Jesus is the referent of the term Kyrios. So he just finds references to Kyrios as God and then to Kyrios as Jesus, and he notes that they're somewhat close together, like they're in the same chapter, the same paragraph, and he's like, aha! Overlap! I think what he's arguing is basically that Mark is deliberately trying to confuse the reader to keep the reader guessing, and his aim in confusing the reader is to get the reader to think that Jesus just is God and also that he isn't, or something like that. He's God, and yet somehow he's other than God. Dr. Johansson wants there to be a problem here, which a Trinity theory is needed to solve. Hard to see, though, how the simple ambiguity of the term Lord is that sort of problem. If that's his thesis, that's quite an uncharitable thesis to attribute to this author. 
But as I explained last time, it's pretty easy to see how an average first century reader could just sit down and listen to this entire book start to finish. And if you ask that person, hey, what's the thesis of this book? They will know what that thesis is. And it doesn't have to do with Jesus being uncreated or eternal or Jesus being the God of Israel in some mysterious way or Jesus is God and he isn't. There's Jesus, who's the Son of God. That's God's Christ. Then there's God, also called the Father. And of course, there's reference to God's Spirit, because that's how prophets work. God's Spirit comes on them, empowers them to do amazing things like part the Red Sea, or give additional divine revelation, or heal the sick, cast out demons. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 11, Jesus says that he casts out demons by the finger of God. That's God's power at work in him. It's not a literal finger. It's the Spirit of God in him that's anointed him, as explained in Luke 4. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what Dr. Johansson calls a battle of blasphemies. Back to Mark. Dr. Johansson mentions a battle of blasphemies. Jesus says his opponents blaspheme the Holy Spirit. They say that he's blaspheming God. Johansson says the battle of blasphemies thus involves God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. He asks, is it merely coincidence that this looks like a Trinitarian pattern? Well, it doesn't look like a Trinitarian pattern. A Trinitarian pattern would be a pattern that has to do with a tripersonal God. How do you look at these blasphemy arguments in this book and come up with the idea that God is tripersonal? You just don't, right? I mean, this is like free association. Let me read for you his entire conclusion now. Last page and a half. Mark's primary focus is on Jesus. Therefore, Jesus' relationship to God stands in the foreground. Indeed, well said. This relationship is such that we can speak of a binatarian pattern a Christological monotheism that includes Jesus in the divine identity of God. Uh, this sentence makes my head want to explode. A binatarian pattern? Are we supposed to think that God is bipersonal? Or is this what Dr. Larry Hurtado talks about as just being a pattern of worshiping God and the Son of God? Neither one in this book, right? Where do we get this binatarian thesis from? What is Christological monotheism? He says it includes Jesus and the divine identity of God. And then we cite Bauckham in a footnote. It makes me sad that the confused and confusing neologisms of Dr. Richard Bauckham are so often just uncritically repeated and just referred to in this book. It's in most of the chapters that I've read. What does it mean to say that Jesus is in the divine identity? Identity, we're talking sameness. What kind of sameness? Being the same person as, right? So God is the one who created and the one who is sovereign. 
that's which person we're talking about, or if you like, those are descriptions of the person who is God. What does it mean to belong to that same divine identity? I guess it means that you're that same person. This is Trinitarian. At bare minimum, these neologisms need clear explication. What's being implied? Why isn't this modalism or modalistic monarchianism or just flat confusing the father and son together? If indeed it's saying that there's one personal identity here, which is God's personal identity and Jesus's personal identity, which is to say that God and Jesus are the same person. Or is he just a part of it? So does God have parts? Does this identity have parts? What is it for an identity to have parts? I don't know. Is it the same as there being a person which has parts? Is Jesus a part of the one person that's God? That's one thing that might be meant by this language. Okay, but it doesn't matter. Bauckham's a big shot. Just gesture in his direction at the end of the chapter. No problem. Surely this is all consistent with the chapter. Right, right. Okay, let's move on. He continues, But the question remains whether Mark is also conscious of the Holy Spirit's inclusion in this identity. My survey of the passages that deal with the Spirit demonstrates that the Gospel of Mark follows the same pattern we find elsewhere in the New Testament. There are passages where the Spirit seems to be described more as an impersonal power than a person, but also passages where the Spirit undoubtedly appears as a personal being. Furthermore, there are a number of passages in which the Spirit is implicitly or explicitly juxtaposed with both God and Jesus, such as 1.8 and 1.10-11, 1236, and the battle of blasphemies could very well be another instance where the triad is intentionally linked. Thus, although the evidence is slim in comparison to many other New Testament writings, it seems that the author of the Gospel of Mark nevertheless was aware of, and to some extent communicated, what may be described as a proto-Trinitarian view, even to the extent that he placed the most important Trinitarian passage, chapter 1, 9 through 11, at the beginning of the gospel. So, where do you see the Trinity in this book? Well, not really anywhere, but you can theorize about divine identity and say, well, maybe Jesus has that and the Spirit has that. So there you go, Trinity. Unclear why that counts as Trinity? Unclear what sort of Trinitarianism that would be. Also, the conclusion is that the book is proto Trinitarian. Again, I ask is proto Trinitarian a way of being Trinitarian? Because if so, you would expect to see some reference to God understood as triune. It could be the term Trinity, or it could just be some phrase Father, Son, and Spirit. Hey, that's the one God, something like that. If you believe in a triune God, the one thing that you are most certainly going to do in a book of theology is to refer to the triune God, somehow. That doesn't happen in this book. Dr. Johansson has not even asserted that it happens in this book. Okay, so then proto-Trinitarian can't imply being actually Trinitarian, like involving a triune God. So it's pre-Trinitarian? So that means not being Trinitarian? but it's proto-Trinitarian, so it's not Trinitarian, properly speaking, but it's somewhat similar to Trinitarian? Well, 
I mean, Trinitarians talk about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and this book talks about God, the Son of God, and the Spirit of God. So there's a similarity. But of course, this is consistent with the book being Unitarian in its theology, which it seems to be. Because, as I explained last time, it presupposes that the one true God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, just is the Father. And Jesus isn't him. Jesus isn't also God. He's the Son of God, the Anointed One, the one specially called, commissioned, empowered by God, the one raised by God at the end of the book. The conclusion of the chapter is a big load of unclear, abstract terms. Proto-Trinitarian? Christological monotheism, binitarian pattern, divine identity. None of these terms is in the gospel. Every one of these terms is controversial. All of these terms are neologisms. No ancient person refers to binitarian pattern in this gospel. No ancient person refers to Christological monotheism. No ancient person refers to Jesus being in the divine identity of God. No ancient person uses the term proto-Trinitarian. These are all much, much later ideas. Now, by itself, that doesn't disqualify them. But such terms would have to earn their keep. It would have to be shown that the book can't be understood without them. I don't think it has been shown here, although it has been asserted. If you think those ideas are in this book, then you think that this is an esoteric book. It's a book with a hidden message. So there's a surface-level message. Maybe it's good and true insofar as it goes. And maybe the less spiritual people, or the less educated people, or the people who aren't quite as smart as smart people like me and you, maybe those people can just be content with the explicit message that Jesus is God's Messiah. But now you must think that there's also a hidden message that in some mysterious way, Jesus just is God himself. That's got to be at least as important as the explicit message, right? So you think this is an esoteric book. It's a book with a surface meaning that might be true, but there is an equally important, if not more important, hidden meaning encoded, starting with the coding in chapter one, but also obliquely gestured at. Jesus controls the wind and the waves. Jesus is called Lord. Ah, I see what you did there. Very clever. But is he that clever? Is he sneaking? Is he hinting? Why would he be sneaking and hinting at this time? He's not writing this book during Jesus's ministry. He's writing this book when the apostles are boldly proclaiming the true messianic ministry, the teaching, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Messiah. Why would he be encoding anything at that time? Maybe this is akin to conspiracy theory. Maybe there really isn't an encoded message in this book. Maybe it's a popular level writing and not an esoteric writing. Maybe the secret message, the sneakily implied main point, exists only in the imagination of the reader who comes to this book already convinced that a 4th century idea must, must, somehow or other, be in this 1st century book. At the very start of this chapter, Dr. Johansson writes, Given a common opinion that the Gospel of Mark displays a low Christology, 
it may seem a futile endeavor to take the discussion a step further in exploring whether a Trinitarian understanding of God can be traced there. I don't think that Dr. Johansson has succeeded in his task, but that's no reflection on his abilities, because it really is a futile endeavor to show that an idea of a triune God is in this book. It's a blatant and obvious anachronism. What he was supposed to show us is that this book implies that the one true God is tripersonal, that the one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He hasn't come anywhere close to showing that. There's just not enough material in the book to work with. I assume that Dr. Johansson would agree that this book always assumes a distinction between the Father and the Son. But I would add the point that it also assumes that the Father just is the God of the Old Testament. And so by distinguishing Jesus from the Father, it's distinguishing Jesus from the one true God. It's not collapsing the two together, nor is it including Jesus within the one God, whatever that might mean. Probably the most obvious and sharpest way the book distinguishes Jesus from God, that is to say the Father, is in chapter 13, when the subject of Jesus' future return comes up. And Jesus says, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, that is to say, God. In this time, it's a Jewish theological presupposition that the one true God is all-knowing. And so, someone who's not all-knowing isn't the one true God. So, Jesus here says as clearly as can be said that there's a certain truth that only God knows and he doesn't know. Right, he's someone else. He's a man. He's God's Christ. If you're trying to figure out whether or not Mark thinks that Jesus is God, this clear and unequivocal passage should be a data point, and it's something that you should give heavier weight to than rickety speculations about Mark's ambiguous usage of the word Lord. Of course, in later tradition, people imagine that there's a brilliant solution to this problem, that just Jesus is limited in knowledge as man, but as God, or in his divine nature, he knows all. But one would have to say, those are not Mark's ideas. Mark would just be putting out this big obvious contrast between Jesus and God, without any of these speculative defensive maneuvers. Is that something that you would do if you were trying to sneakily imply that Jesus is the one God? Oddly, this passage doesn't come up for discussion in this chapter. I suppose it's the kind of thing that a scholar could decide to ignore, but I'm pretty sure it would stand out to the teenager, to the day laborer, listening to this book being read out in a first century house church. This week's thinking music has been the track Hollow Grove Instrumental by Josh Woodward. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. 
You can also check out joshwoodward.com for all of his music. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.